Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot today, along with James Winter, our trusted foodie navigator. Hello. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I've given a clue away to my state today. I must. I have to confess to the dear listener that I, I, I stayed up quite late drinking red wine with some friends last night. <laughs> and on today's show, as we are all staring down the barrel of festive hangovers and with an eye on New Year's resolutions, we're going to explore the origins of one particular demon drink, once considered the end of civilization, associated with crime, madness, and a spike in death. Rates, we are hopping into our time machine to uncover the amazing story of gin. Plus, we're going to be discovering where the purest drink of water in the world can be found. So, grab a glass, breathe deeply through your hangover, James, and come with us on a journey to the centre of gin. Hello, James. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy Merry Christmas as well, and all that stuff Merry retrospectively. Yes. yes. How's the head? It's all right, actually. Thankfully, one of the people I was with last night, as I've learnt during life, has very good taste in wine. And and I I don't know whether it's true or not, but I've always found that the more expensive and better quality wine you drink, the less severe your pain the next day. But it's it's mild, but it's there. I I completely agree. If I drink... Oh, it's just when you think back on the folly of youth when you would mix things together and wonder why you felt awful the next day. Whereas if you just drink something really nice in a singular type of thing, it's not mm. too bad... The next day. So what is your... Everyone has a, a sort of um, bespoke hangover cure. What is your bespoke well, hangover cure? I suppose it's not very bespoke, but it's first of all, it's quite simple. It's sleep. Uh, and then followed <laughs> by copious amounts of water. And then depending if I have to function like this, about three cups of coffee. And fight through, through the urge to, to have a bacon sandwich, because that, that means sleep to me. So oh, does I can it? eat that. Oh, no, it's bacon sandwich. To... That's the bacon sandwich and half a can of Coke. That is, and, and possibly a whisper. Those are my three not a, hangover not cures. A, not a, a sausage McMuffin from our, uh, oh, our, no. fa- our favourite clown chef. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's a simple, it's a baker sandwich, half a can of Coke, and and a whisper. If things are getting really bad, it's a whisper. Whisper gold if things are getting really, really God, bad. Oh, blimey. That's so sugary. You've gone for the sugar sugar solution. Yeah, but that's what yeah, it's at, isn't so it? I, that's you just got to give yourself a pop. Get, get who knows? I, I'm sure who there knows? must be I, some mystical... Tr- I, I remember once I went... We were filming in Brazil, and we'd been in the jungle for weeks, and we came out, and we went absolutely berserk as you would um, on all this Brazilian booze and we had a, an, a medic with us who was there to look after the, 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 the filming team and make sure none of the contributors got hurt and he promised me he promised me that he had some kind of ability to make sure I didn't have a hangover he had drips with him he had drugs with him and he said he was going to be able to uh, administer to me the following day some kind of magical drip potion that meant I would not be hung over so I went berserk, and, and then the following day, he had a complete sort of wave of morality come over, and he said, oh, Jay, I can't be hooking you up to drips and doing all this. I was like, you're kidding me now? And he said, I can give you two paracetamol, though. I was like, oh, my God. Well, you, you, were, you were about to be sort of needled into a, yes. a mobile drip. Well, <laughs> yes. I suppose. I mean, it's all about sort of fluid, isn't it? You just pump you full of some mist. Wow. Yes. I mean, that's it. to have that handy, though, is quite a, quite a lot of it's a, a lot of planning. Having a medic on hand is quite a useful thing to have after a night out. It's a, it's a rare thing to have. Um, and it and turns out a completely useless thing to have. And he went on to have a very successful broadcasting career. Most people listening in Britain will probably know who he is. So I shall not expand on that. But he was fantastically... Uh, but he's managed to function you know, quite well on this process for many, many years. Is that what you're saying? That's what he said. 
dead. He's willing to administer it to himself, and he just wouldn't do it to me. Full blood transfusion before <laughs> broadcasting. Um, but we should talking about hangover cures and um, people with low moral gravity. We should definitely get our guest host in for this week because I'm sure he's got something to say about this. Uh, <laughs> we believe he is the finest food historian on the planet, broadcaster. Book writer, former historian of the Royal Kitchens, and booze experts extraordinaire. Uh, we're delighted to welcome back Mark Meltonville. Hello, Mark. Happy New Year. Hello, Happy New Year, everyone. Yeah, I've got a couple of um, uh, ideas there. Well, one, James, I have an uh, easy cure for what you're suffering from. I haven't got any friends, so that doesn't happen to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have we have at least three friends listening. That's all right. That's all right. We got rid of them on last week's episode when we talked about TV for an hour. Then we'll go. Oh, there's only one left <laughs> anyway the yep very similar to a bit of a mix um the one that i was introduced to some years ago um and pass on to to the many uh includes a glass of cola as you said any brand will do but poured <laughs> as you go to bed so that it's flat when you wake up so that you can drink it quickly which you can't do with the carbonation because it's all about the sugar and the caffeine in there that's some preparation that's that's some knowledge next to it you must place the cheapest and i stress the cheapest cold capsule you can buy from a supermarket one of their cold and flu capsules from a supermarket 16p for eight or something like that (laughs) but again it contains a little bit of paracetamol uh some caffeine Everything to pull you out of a out of a cold. So I was told if you have to go to work the next morning, a half pint glass of flat cola and one cold capsule, and you're back on the planet. I love the way wow. everyone has their own magical mix, which never really works either, does it? You're like you'll have it, and because I get these stealth hangovers now, which don't arrive till the afternoon. You wake up and you think you're fine because your kids scream you out of bed. <laughs> And then you go crack on with work, and then about three o'clock in the afternoon, you're like, oh, what was that? Where did that come from? Just arrived out the back. <laughs> it's called still being drunk till three in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, isn't it? Officer. And you finally sobered up. <laughs> Well, well, listen. This is this is yeah. this is not going to help you hangover, James. A a, a radio mm. link. Uh, what do you need when you have a hangover? You need pure water. Um, so I was doing some reading. Uh, I thought well, you know, I was just googling around, thinking, what is what is because obviously water is not equal. All water is not equal. Um, mm. And there's obviously different levels of purity that you can get in different waters. And I'm sure lots of the mineral water companies sort of ply their trade and sell uh, sell it on the idea that it's the purest. So I started Googling around to find where the purest glass of water could be found in the world. Do you want to venture a guess uh, about, first of all, why it would be pure um, mm. and whereabouts roughly in the world we might find it? So, so my instinct would say maybe it's high. Yeah, mountains feel pure. I don't know. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Sort of, sort of that. Sort of up in the clouds. You know, using the cloud as a, a natural filtration system, falling down over these beautifully crisp, sort of snowy mountain tops. You know, and then and then perhaps going through some kind of porous rock and flowing out of a waterfall, so it's moving very fast or, or something. I don't know. Yeah, that would be my romantic impression of where the purest, cleanest, freshest, coldest, crispest water might be. I think you're very. You're bang on. Well, you're very, very close to the exact truth. And so there's a couple of options here, both of which are mountainous uh, and and have the similar filtration thing. The first one, which is regarded as the purest, and this is um, extensive research carried out by the University of North Texas and the University of Magallanes and the University of Chile 
have concluded that Puerto Williams in Santiago, Chile, has the purest water on the planet. There is absolutely no trace of pollution in it at all, which apparently is very, very rare nowadays. It is a town in Chile uh located in the magallanes region uh it has a population of only 2500 and is dubbed the southernmost city in the world uh and it earns most of its income through tourism but it is surrounded by mountains uh and it is very very uh sort of sparse there so but the second one again is similar to what you said this is crater lake in the united states it is a almost 2000 foot deep crater located in Oregon. It was formed almost 8,000 years ago when a volcano collapsed after an eruption. Uh, it's in a national park. But the interesting thing is it's, um, it's fed by rainfall and snow. There's no rivers, lakes or streams. Nothing goes into it, basically. Um, so it can't be contaminated by anything else. So the water, like you said, just comes off the mountains and goes straight into it through the snowfall, which drips into the water. Um, and uh, apparently it's incredibly vibrant coloured. It's like beautiful blues and very see-through. So, um, so yes, so with a hangover, get your glass. That's interesting. And either head to Chile or Oregon. And yeah, now I often want to see. They always talk now about the next great economic battleground in the world is going to be underground water, you know, and and these great reservoirs of water which are beneath the the, the land masses. And and I don't know if I've ever tried underground water. I don't know. I might have done. I don't know whether it's accessible to the the, the common man in the street somehow. But that always strikes me as being a, a source. That, what is that underground? Be, why why do we not already drink? Do we not already <laughs> drink underground water though? Like yeah, spray do. <laughs> but water might travel underground, yes, and come up and resurface. But there are great pockets of water that, that people are searching for. Like they used to search for oil, you know, when we until we drain that dry in parts of the world. Now it's about water because, but, you know, water is is obviously we need water to survive. So, you know, whoever controls the water, it's like Dune, isn't it? it controls <laughs> life, you know. And it's 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 you know it's already people are buying these tracts of land that are supposedly rich with underground water and. and you know, they pump it up in agricultural terms in, in parts of the world. They, you know, they, they're able to farm in these great big, certainly in Australia and places like this. You know, they're looking for this ge- you know, on the geo mapping, however they do it, you know, with dividing rods, I don't know, whatever. And they build their farms out in the desert because they tunnel down. And it's often very, very deep, you know, so you have to have quite severe, you know, big machinery to, to get at it. But once you can, you know, you've got squillion liters of water which means you don't need rain anymore to to have a farm so this right? is like but this is not so is this water that comes and goes through the rocks and keeps going or is it just pools that have never been tapped yeah i think it's that i mean i don't know mark might know more but it's you know it's it's pools of water that have never been accessed before and obviously there's lots of theories about how water ended up on this planet you know and, and a lot of the theory you know leans towards the idea that water came from outer space these great big frozen blocks of water which we found floating in the asteroid belt crashed into earth and stayed on earth and obviously due to the rather goldilocks conditions of earth it it, it took its liquid form which is remarkable and, and mysterious and we've talked about it before but no one really understands how or what it is you know at the, at the basis level you know and it, it's it, it's the basis of our existence here so it's 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 underground in, in lots of ways it's pummeling the earth you know from from asteroids from millions of years ago that's that's hit here melted and and then whatever been covered over or or, or whatever it's not coming out of the middle of the earth water it's coming from out of space but all the water that's always been here has always been here so what that means is the water that we drink today has been drunk by dinosaurs because the water just goes it's a yes. cyclical nature isn't it Which is exactly cool. exactly my point you know so there's, there isn't any more water coming yeah you know but there's more people and there's more things and and obviously evaporation and global warming is threatening all this stuff but it's and it's getting polluted so we're constantly looking for new sources of water mm. 
yeah, if there's any more water coming from space, it's in the form of a really large rock, and we don't want that it's coming. We don't, not, we don't want that coming here. Not that, not a bit. Not unless it lands in the middle of the Pacific. Would that be all right? No, well, yes, that's a tidal yes, wave. No. That's a tidal yeah, wave. Tidal that's waves. not good. Well, they, they, not good they, for your Chilean friends yeah, if they're pure they, water. Exactly. Well. You're contaminating the pure water places now. They've Have now you ever had? Your, what's your ice cold and Alex moment when it comes to not a beer but water? Is there any point you've ever been somewhere where when you had a glass of water afterwards? It was just a special moment. You remember it because of it. I, for example, remember as a kid, we, we went to France. My parents insisted on taking us on this endless bike ride. Endless bike ride, which was probably only about a mile. But when you're a kid, you know everything's <laughs> long. And we were going and going and going. And we eventually ended up in this little uh, French cafe place. And you know you're always told, don't drink the French water. <laughs> Never drink the French. Good luck out for the ice cubes. We got a glass of just water and it was fabulous. And it tasted amazing because, and it didn't poison us that we'd been told. And Mark, you, you spent most of your life in France. Do you? Yeah, uh, do, we, do you... No, we, we just, you know, I was, I was brought up uh, in Normandy around a farm. <laughs> we did what everyone else did, you know, drank the tap water and weed outside. I mean, I didn't see what the problem was. <laughs> everyone else seemed to think it was so dangerous <laughs> to, uh, to drink the water. Um, but there was, quite a lot of uh, taps about as I was growing up which had non-potable written above as well yes there was there was quite a mixture of water in France what we'd now call grey water and processed so um, if you were in a house it was fine but if you were outside or or uh, uh, saw a standpipe somewhere then there's a very good chance no that wasn't processed for drinking mm. for quite it's it's all fine now it now has an immense pressure in it french water it's the most ridiculous system really? yes because i had a, i had a tap burst the or uh, yeah a tap break a few months ago and uh, thought i could fix it and their pool their cold water <laughs> pressure is six bar ours is about one uh, so your showers means, are all power showers. Yeah, it, it, it means it launches your broken tap across the room, <laughs> and all <laughs> efforts to fix it are are null and void until you find a plumber with a blow lamp. It's that sort of thing. I love it. So, French uh, plumber as well in the middle of Norway. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, on a on a Sunday, this was of course. So <laughs> no no one works a jot till Tuesday. No. <laughs> yeah, that's basically. Yeah, yeah. Turn it off. Yes, I was. I was just in Rome last year for for a weekend. They still have lots of sort of um, accessible, what do you call it, sort of water pipes in the in the street, which are all fed. I believe the water the water system in Rome is still fed from the original Roman underground um, aqueduct. Whatever, if they're still called that underground, um, from a, from the seven mountains that surround Rome. So it floods into the city on these incredibly well engineered sort of tunnels which then some of it is it's obviously it was there to, to pump the fountains Rome is famous for a tribute fountain and all these things so it's there to f- sort of to boost it and, and fire it in the air and look wonderful but also it's accessible to the general public so I did try a bit of that I must say it had a very odd flavour and I didn't enjoy it it's usually got a very um, straight straight from the aquifer is usually quite high on minerals will often have a yes, metal- it was, it had a, metallic well, it had a f- it had a flavor, yes, exactly. It had a metallic, fl- and it had a flavor. You know, it had a kind of green. It was like, you know, it, it, it tasted a little bit greeny, yeah. you know, uh, with a metallic tinge. I love to that. It, it tasted was green. A, that's great. Yeah. Way yeah. Of oh, yeah. 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 Those fountains, uh, those fountains are very important in the past, not just in in Roman cities, but right across. If you, every time you visit a stately home, there's a fountain either outside or in one of the courtyards. Yeah, all the palaces are. They are the uh, pressure release valve for the water system. Um, yeah. Obviously, fairly well known for for working at Hampton Court for many years. We have a huge fountain in what's called Fountain Court, which is a good place to put it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I wish uh, you'd uh, <laughs> yeah, it was um, 
the reason of that was the Tudor water system came three miles down an eight-inch bore pipe. That's a lot of pressure. Now, that means that if no one is using any water, no taps are turned on, and they had taps on the second floor from this system. If no one's using a tap, you've got that pressure. So your pressure release is a fountain. So when people are having baths, do the fountains go lower? In theory, if you'd used enough water in the kitchens, in every bathroom, everywhere, you should have been able to get the fountain to drop a couple of foot. I don't know if anyone ever tried it. But that's that. firstly, the fountains are there as air conditioning because water vapour is cool. So if you're in a hot country like Rome, you put fountains everywhere and it creates air conditioning in the courtyard. And it's also the pressure release on a non-mechanical water system. Do they... So before the fact... So in terms of making them all very grand and very high, that's not necessary. It's just a place to get is the water recycled from the fountain then or is not it just... usually usually it it comes from a distance away through filter systems comes into the building and then to the fountain as the pressure release and then goes back to another river or stream it's usually a one-way system it's very i don't know of any that are re-pumped until you can start building pumps steam pumps and things like that how interesting i've noticed around anyway. here in london that we're starting to get more and more of these um Drinks fountains, like modern versions of drinks fountains appearing. And I just in the street. Think, in the street, yeah. They're like white with like blue raindrops on the top. And they are the, the, the things you had at primary school, which where you push the button and that comes the water. And that's the problem. Well, I'll never use them because I still have memories of primary school because there's always that one kid who puts his mouth on it. And it's just like, <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to use it. Especially in these non-touch zone uh, times we live in. Yeah. I can't imagine nah, there's nah, queues nah, of people nah. willing to... It's weird, right? Oh, I'll go to... it's like, yeah. yeah, I don't know why they've invested in these things. It just seems like, well, that's an odd... Unless they devise some system, I haven't looked closely enough of it yet, but it stops your mouth... You remember for a while in, in rugby, they, they developed... You know the water bottles? They had a big problem, which was normal water bottles. Everyone, regardless of how many times you tell them, they stick their, their mouth in their mouths. And then once one player on the team got a cold, everyone got it, and they couldn't play properly. So they developed these ones which sort of had these weird um, sticky-out flat bits, so you had to squirt it in your mouth vertically yeah. rather than putting your gob around it and I don't think even that worked I think people still found a way to sort of <laughs> lick suck the... on it <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, I remember playing the sport you're like dude I'm going to put that in my mouth now can you stop it get it out of your mouth like a big dummy um, anyway right. we massively, uh, massively as usual tangented off here Mark uh, yes you are here mm. To delve into the beautiful history of gin, but also I imagine lots of people out there, unwisely, I say, are starting to sort of swear off booze now because of uh, because of the new year, and everyone's going, "That's it, I'm never yes. drinking again." Um, yes. So it might be good to have some cautionary <laughs> tales from history. Oh. Talk to us about gin. Right now, we um, the same way I will uh, preface a lot of things. I'm not a gin expert. I'm a food historian who studies food and drink, which means I've got a bit of gin in my head. But uh, if you want to, if you you know, there'll be things where we're going to have to go, oh, you really need someone who studied gin on this one. So let's see how far I can go at answering Mark, your questions. Mark, don't worry. You, you are far more qualified than anyone we normally have on this podcast. So, and we make gin, huge leaps of fact. Gin, don't worry gin, about it. Gin is, is interesting because it is one of those things that's embedded in the British psyche. Most people... Uh, have heard of or, or tasted a bottle of London dry gin so it's associated with Britain as, as one of our drinks whereas it actually comes from abroad like so many things and uh, the other thing people have often heard about that you alluded to is these gin troubles this this famous period in history when we overdid it mother's ruin but everything we we overdid it big time and so those sorts of things are, are interesting to, to unpick I mean gin is gin is fairly simple um, the word comes from the Latin uh, juniper or juniper, it means a juniper berry. The word juniper uh, is pronounced differently across Europe. Um, we tended to uh, 
first encounter this this gin-based spirit uh, around the area called Flanders, which is Holland, Belgium. They use the word Geneva or Geneva, which just means juniper berry again. We are English. We don't say Geneva very easily. And when <laughs> something uh, turns up called gin, we, we shorten. Are you going to ask for a bottle of Geneva every time? You're going to shorten it down. We call Geneva gin. So it's a, it's a very simple, uh, I'll have that gin, please, Dave. <laughs> it's as simple as that. <laughs> wow. it, okay. it, so it, it's, it's name, name is easy to track down. It means juniper berry. And as a spirit, if you, if you were to say to me, well, what's gin? Why isn't it whiskey? Why isn't it vodka? What is it? It is a spirit. And uh, we now make all of our gin from malt. So barley, barley based spirit. That's what we we took to in England, and quite large parts of uh, Flanders were already doing this. Historically, it was made with wine as well, so you can have a wine gin or a barley gin. It'll just change the base flavour slightly. What do you mean made with wine? So maybe grapes. Well, yeah, so a grape based spirit. If I if if we were to uh, play around with a still and. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark has a license, so don't ring anyone. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, an open invitation. If you want to play with a still, Mark Meltonville has has a license many. because otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, very very nice men kill you <laughs> if you don't have a license if you play with these things. Um, if we were to take a bottle of wine or several and put it through a still, we'll have wine spirit, and from that, the most famous would be to make brandy by putting it in a oak barrel. And if we take beer. Then we'll make a malt spirit, and you're starting to understand those words for whiskey, malt spirit whiskies, but also gin or a malt spirit. And then you can go off at wider tangents. You get to America, you use other grains such as um, corn, maize, mm. and you're heading down the bourbon route. You can use potatoes or other grains, and you're heading down the vodka route. It all depends on what you start with. Vodkas are made from every sort of grain, and that's that's the differences. There's potato vodka, there's wheat vodka, there's uh, barley vodka. That's, that's where you get the taste differences. So traditionally, in Northern Europe, the gin drink is made from uh, barley uh, rather than wine, although there's some of the early recipes... Uh, some of the earliest ones I have do tell you to take wine spirit. And it's something I do want to try in the future. I want to try a, a wine starting. I might be disappointed because you distill things many times to get to gin. I would probably go through about three distillations to get to the, the gins I make. So you may have lost a lot of the original flavour and you're replacing it with the flavours we associate with gin, which is uh, to be a gin, it has to have the, the main flavour is juniper. If we don't put juniper in there, it's another spirit. Come up with your own name. <laughs> but it's not gin. Mm. Where does it come from fascinates me. Um, this is part of some work I've, I've been toying around with, uh, along with a university over in, um, in Ireland. All spirits, so we all have had a nip of something over Christmas, all spirits start off in the medicine cupboard. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, no, it's as simple as that. It, they all start off with the physician's with the, uh, the, the apothecaries, uh, and they start, and this is incredible, this is classical. They are making a spirit in classical times because spirits will carry flavours and will make solutions. So if you're working medically, having a bottle of spirit, as they call it, they call it aquavitae, strong water, water of life, all these different names and if you want to mix up a medicine so james has got his hangover he comes to my little apothecaries and i go right for this you need my one that's got juniper and caraway and aniseed and so on in in there i hand you over this little bottle 
often called a tincture, and you go away and sip it and feel so much better. No, so this, this, it's hair of the dog, is it? That's what, well, that's it's, no, it's not so much hair of the dog because you're not drinking a spirit first. You're drinking beer and wine and so on. And I'm trying to find the crossover because obviously there were some medicines um, and Again, if you've been around um, drink and food and things, James will know, you've come across some very weird stuff made up in the mountains of the Alps. People are forever <laughs> passing. Mm. Kummel, I think, is the one I find most difficult to drink, which is a, a, a liqueur made with cumin. The two just don't go together. Ooh, that's uh, interesting. I, I, I see a martini there. There are, <laughs> there are drinks made with rosemary, sage, especially, especially in the mountain regions, all mm. the way down Italy, all around the Alps, Switzerland. There's all these weird... Uh, Until you medicinal. end up with Jägermeister. It's another one. That's it's exactly another one. It's exact, that is exactly what that is. It's, it's a tonic. It was originally sold. That's very medicinal. It looks medicinal. Yeah, yeah. It so, smells mm. medicinal. So that seems to be where all of your spirits start, is in the medicine cupboard. And there is a crossover, and we're only just trying to unpick it. Because you can't go from medicine cupboard to gin craze. It's not going to happen over. There's got to be that transition. Mm. And I'm starting to find... Uh, the different places that that um, push it over. One of the one of the uh, f- things that uh, was right in front of us was the, uh, the French term. If you have a meal, we drink wine, you drink beer, and then when you go on to your brandy with coffee, it's not called a drink anymore. It's a digestive. It's a medicine. It's helping you. Mm, yeah. I've I've just filled you with duck. Now this will help you digest. This is a good thing. Look, have a glass of medicine. So that idea is still there in our psyche. If you unpick mm. the languages around, does it Europe. work? Does that idea of a digestive? You know, we get that sort of fire water know. in some places. Well, it will cut the grease a bit. <laughs> I mean, that's about <laughs> it. Um, the Calvados in Normandy, where I live, it, it, the the name for that little pot of Calvados with your coffee is a trou normand, the Norman hole. <laughs> which means it cuts straight down through everything you've eaten to create a nice void for you. Wow. <laughs> what a romantic way of describing a drink. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a good good way of putting it. Well, some of that stuff will kill a goat. I mean... <laughs> now, I'm just going to pause here, because as we're all talking about a new year and a new us, I'm sure some of us are probably thinking about going out and getting some new clothes. The good news is we have a sponsor who's here to take all the hassle out of that experience. They are called Stitch Fix, and I can now speak from personal experience about how it works, because I did this myself a couple of weeks ago, and it's really, really interesting. My wife said to me, oh yeah, we know all about this, but I'd never heard of them before. Basically, it's a company out there that uh, that pick cool clothes for you. You don't have to pay for them unless you like them, but basically there's a stylist who gets in touch with you, goes through your different styles, the things you want to buy, and then suggests different clothes for you to buy. And if you like their suggestions, they then send you the clothes, uh, and you get to try them on. And if you want to keep some of them, as I did, you keep them. If not, you send them back with a note to your stylist, which sounds terribly posh, but you don't have to pay for the experience more than 10 quid, and that gets taken off your clothes when you buy them. It's it's really cool. And I got clothes that fitted me really well, and I really liked, and probably things I wouldn't have bought myself and without any other hassle in it. Basically, Stitch Fix is an online personal styling company that makes getting clothes you love effortless. It's a completely different way to shop that's all about you every time. Now, I suggest you do what I did, which is go to stitchfix.co.uk slash journey to set up your profile, and you're going to get great personalised looks just for you in your colours, styles, and budget. As I said, you pay a £10 styling fee for each fix, which is credited then towards anything that you keep. And you'll get 20% off when you keep everything 
in your fix. Uh, it's done whenever you want, at whatever time you want it, and uh, it's a really unique, interesting and new way to shop that I found completely hassle-free and really enjoyable. So get started today at stitchfix.co.uk slash journey. That's stitchfix.co.uk slash journey and get yourself a brand new look for a brand new year. Right, let's get back to some gin. In in Britain then, mm. I, I, you're right, I associate a lot of these kind of digestives with France and Italy and, and parts of Europe, but, in, but what would we be having? What would, be, what would the noble Englishman be having after his... You know, roasted pig or whatever to wash his. This, wash, wash it down. this is the one we just have not found yet. Whether there's anything being prescribed is a, is, a, is a way of it. Um, the very earliest ones I'm just starting to get, and it, because I happen to be working with a, a Dublin-based university, is we're picking up diaries from English officers who are over there in the late 16th century, so the 1590s, things like right. that, and they're talking. And they, obviously they write in this diary because it's not what they're doing at home. They're talking about how they travel across parts of Ireland and it's windy and it's wet. And uh, when they get to the castles that they're going to stay in, someone comes out as they're getting off a horse and basically offers them a shot because it's cold and wet. And they're drinking this thing, which is called water of life. But um, they use the, the Gaelic, which is, which is the root word for whiskey. They're, they're, drink, they're using their medicine as a, well, it's cold and you're wet, have a glass of this. And they also mention that when they finish their roast pig, as James puts it, and they go back up to their chambers, so it's like sort of, like, you know, let's go and sit down around the fire for a bit, there's more glasses of this stuff to warm you up in the evening. So that seems to be one of the first picking up this taste. It feels like it, right? Home. You can imagine the idea of it's yeah. a medicinal... Uh, sip because you are feeling cold then it's cold. put it in a hip flask in case you feel cold and then it's like should we just have a drink yeah. of that because we might feel yeah. cold and then suddenly it's fun and it and it yeah and it starts it starts to spread across europe and i, I can't yet track each one uh but certainly by the time we get into england's 17th century we've realized that um french brandies are something we have quite a taste for we like that that cognac taste and that seems to become one of the popular again perhaps pushed by the fact that they consider this a you know a medicinal pick-me-up but it, it slowly transitions exactly as you said from something you're telling people i just need this because i don't want to get a cold to give us another you know i'll have another shot of that before we go to bed and and mm. obviously the flavor profiles and you've got so many different herbal versions and the best guess is that gin uh, don't ignore the internet. The, the internet tells you that a man called Franciscus Stivus um, invented gin. He didn't. <laughs> <laughs> there are recipes all across the Alps. Probably Italy is the, the monks of Italy are, are coming up with all these blends. And you and I, we're all different, but we also have sets of flavours that more people like than others. Um, mm. We leave the the uh, the one with rosemary on the shelf. We leave the one with. Um, uh, uh, cumin on the shelf because it tastes weird but the one with juniper we like so you keep going back to that one all the time and they become they become the ones that transition in, into drink but why does gin become the British one what was that's the one that, uh, yeah. that I was interested in because it's all about social history well it's to do with everything other than drink it's social history it's politics it's religion because I always put forward that gin is the Protestant drink and if you look at the 17th century, so that's all the 1600s. We're fighting everybody. You have, we have the Seven Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, the Eighty Years' War. They all overlap. Um, they're all to do with us and all the rest of Europe. We're, we're not alone. All being uppity, fighting each other. Uh, every, 
most people don't realise that Spain owned most of Holland and Belgium for a very long time. And so we're fighting the Spanish in the Low Countries. The Dutch are on our side. Then we fight the Dutch because they've got too many colleagues. Everyone fights everybody. And during that, the, the sides tend to gang up Protestant Catholic. So it's rare for us to be a French ally. It's more common for us to be a Dutch or German one and, and so on. When you get to the end of that century, we're pretty well in with the Dutch, so much so that we've got William of Orange. We get our first double king and queen. William and Mary comes over from Holland, invited to take the crown. He already has a taste for this Geneva, so he's already quite keen and a little bit disappointed that you can't buy it in London. Ah. Brandy, which is what everybody does want, well, that's French and they won't sell it to us. So you've got a political problem, a war problem. Uh, the government gets all uppity and says, right, we don't like the French. We're going to tax the hell out of brandy. So if you really want a bottle of brandy, your lordship, you're going to pay through the nose because we don't want you buying it from them. And the king at the same time goes... I think I'm going to make gin making unlicensed because I'd like that in London. <laughs> so what would you do? It's <laughs> a patriotic mm. duty now to not buy French brandy, but to make gin in London like the king wants because I'm not going to tax you. We'd all do it, <laughs> and that's why it happens. And it's it trendy as well because if the king's doing so it, it's, it's trendy. It's, cool. it's a new, it's a new flavour. Yeah. Um, it's easy to make. We have. Well, how did they know how to make it? Ah, oh, oh. How did this good, knowledge spread? Good question. Um, Good job it's not TV, otherwise I hold a book up now. The London <laughs> Distiller of 1698 is the book it's called. It belongs to the Worshipful Company of Distillers, one of the London Worshipful Companies, one of the guilds. And it is one of the first books I can find in English that tells you how to make a lot of different spirits, but several gins in there. And they produce this book because you don't know how to. So they're mm. quickly getting the information out to the distillers saying, here, here's how you do it. Next question from you guys is, Mark, you've got a license. Why aren't you making that <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. really quickly? And the answer is I'm working on it because they're not stupid. The entire book is in code. Oh, what? In case, in case a mug like me finds a copy and goes, well, hey, I'll make some of that. Oh. Wait All a minute, so the, it's a code that only people who've been through the Guild of Distillers you, know? You, you will have been sent the code sheet. Oh, that's uh, which great. so far is it like the is it as tough as Enigma or do you think you can crack um, it, Mark? That's for, yeah. not yet because I haven't. Um, no, no one's invested any money. There's in a my life. Time. There's a life. Goal. It's like a Dan uh, Brown book. The next Dan Brown, the sort of it's yep. the Da Vinci it's not, Code. The I mean, I'm code. sure it's not that complicated. I do. When we get some downtime on the next project, I do want to sit down with a couple of distillers, and there'll be proportions they already know, and they say, "Well, it can't be more than that of this amount of this flavor. Otherwise, it's going to." Do they still it. have code so books? We'll, do they still get given them when they no, go? Oh. Uh, no, no. The, and and the I mean, it's all it's done is it's replaced all the numbers with symbols. It's not. It's not exactly yeah. wildly complicated. Uh, most of them are astrological so it'll say take juniper and then the symbol for taurus and then pound so somebody's just transposed the numbers to to symbols it's not uh, but it was to do exactly what it's done 400 years later it stops me doing it at the moment. yeah it's amazing <laughs> it's, so you could make the original gin if you could only crack this and one code. of the original ones I've, I've had a go at one from the very uh, from before uh, the licensing so pre-licensed gin a recipe from 1734 by a beautifully named man called Ambrose Cooper and his recipe. And, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's it's smooth and uncomplicated is the way I like it. And I, I'm not going to tell you the recipe in case I go commercial with it. <laughs> <laughs> tell us in code. It's Taurus, oh, Libra, yeah, I, Libra, Pisces. Yeah, yeah, yes, it's, 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 it's got things in it. <laughs> but, no, so you've got this unlicensed 
boom, you say exactly that. You've got the trendy new drink, like when lager came in. So everyone's going, oh, what's this? We'll try that. You've got a chance to make money from a new enterprise. So a bit like the gin boom now, where everyone's having a go at new flavours. So there's there's a drive on every level. And what we have in Britain is a lot of barley production. And gin can be made from barley that would make a substandard beer because you're using it as a base. So if you can, then suddenly someone goes, you know, all that duff barley we got that we were going to wedge into some beer for Christmas and hope they didn't notice. <laughs> we could make, we could make this gin. And, and so it, as I say, it goes completely nuts. And um, they think, so you've gone from the 1690s when this book comes out, the next uh, check is 1720s. They do a quick, you know, what's going on in London. And they come up with, 1,500 producers in London. My God. In 20 wow. something years. Because, uh, uh, and this is causing a problem because it's cheap and it, uh, it's available. And from that moment on, they start to try and rein it in. And that's your period of gin problem. So from the mm. 1720s to the 50s, you've got this 30 years of the government going, look, we, we can't do this. Uh, unlicensed means no revenue. That's the worst one. Unlicensed means no quality control. So for every good gin, there are two bad ones. How bad was this? I mean, because is, is this is this propaganda because they want to tax it that everyone's lolling around the street? Yeah, part, partly, partly propaganda because of course they the idea uh, something I got when I started distilling, which is eight years ago over in America, I was taught to distill uh, over there by a wonderful master distiller called Dave Pickerel. Who, who's I didn't realise was as famous as he was just my friend Dave that helped me <laughs> learn to distill and it turns out he was one of the world greats he's a fantastic bloke and um, he said the first thing you'll anyone will tell you is oh be careful what you're doing you'll go blind he says and it'll take me ten minutes to teach you how to stop that that's it it's it's really really simple one percent of uh, between one and two percent of what comes off a still you shouldn't drink and well, that's the first one or two percent so you throw it away it isn't difficult but if you're immoral but, people are drinking that and people are going blind yeah. Um, well, the, the the big one with the blindness, is, and this is a sh- another show entirely, is Prohibition, where people are trying to cut corners by making mm. what we now think of basically antifreeze booze, which is cheap and easy. It's drug dealing. Um, no, black market booze is another drug deal, and drug dealers sell you rubbish. It's as simple as that. Yeah, so, so this gin, it's a, it's a, it's a different... getting, well, hooked on this gin because it was everywhere and cheap. and It was so cheap. Um, it, as to how much of it was bad, it's very difficult to make one that isn't... It, it, to cut it with anything at that time, it's difficult to do. You can't produce, and the problem is the difference between ethanol and methanol. Ethanol is drinking alcohol. Methanol is what you stick in your wash bottle to stop your water freezing in your car. Uh, today, with modern stills and large factories, you can produce the cheap methanol, but you couldn't then. So there is in the 20th century, there is a reason to produce massively cheap, cut, bad drinks and sell them on the corners and sell them on the street corners. It's too too difficult to do then. So it doesn't matter. It's just bad quality drink. And the other one that's confused people is the two things that go into early gin recipes. One is turpentine and they're not putting it in there to try and con anyone they just seem to think it gives a nice flavor Terp, uh, we, what terps terps yeah and that's that's something that with the looking back at history everyone's going oh you know they're putting terps in there to make it cheap and ruin it no it was a it's a flavor profile that they that actually it does quite smell like. nice Terp does uh, smell it's lovely. pine it's 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 a um, dis- well. dissolved pine resin so it, it is a type of flavor um i don't like it in there the other problem <laughs> the other problem is that um they've worked out you can distill 
jinns and other spirits with something called oil of vitriol. Have you come across that word? What James? a great phrase. Oil of, vitri- oil of vitriol. No, oil of vitriol has a modern modern term from the lab. It's called sulfuric acid. Oh, um, wow. It sounds bad. It's not as bad. <laughs> you no. sound like the guy who's just been caught by the gin police. Going, it sounds um, bad, right? <laughs> um, sulfuric acid will not come over as sulfuric acid if you put it in a still. So the distillate will not contain sulfuric acid, but they are chemically close to water. The water um, water is H two O. We'll mm. remember that. Some people remember sulfuric acid, H2SO4. H2SO4. Yeah. Yes. Yes, you've got it. And um, <laughs> it, when, if you put them into a still with each other, the sulfuric acid releases a different oxy, uh, oxygen molecule. So it changes the flavour profile of the distillate. You are not putting sulfuric acid in your gin. Mm. You are completely changing the way it distills. And so it, it was just another science thing. But when people read about that, that also starts putting, oh, they were trying to kill everybody. No, it's chemically wildly complicated. Apparently it produces yeah. a sweetness in in the... Uh, in, I was going to ask about where, where does the sulphur go in that distillation? Should, well, should st- I was presuming it stays... Oh, no, they might come over because we're now tapping into the back of the brain. It's the sulphur in water. Beautiful radio segue there. It's the, <laughs> it's, the, it's the sulphur in water that creates the beer, which we think of as Burton Ale, that becomes so popular in the 19th century, mm-hmm. the Burtonization process. And it's all back down to that the water in the area of Burton-on-Trent has a high sulphur content and creates right. a better beer. So everything we've talked about is, is part of one circle. How do you yeah. get rid of that gin craze? Well, you, you try and um, tax it. You try uh, campaigns like we now do on the internet and TV. They do it with, through prints. One of the most famous prints of the 18th century is Hogarth's Beer Street. If you've never seen it, Google it. It's part of two pictures, so they're going to go on the wall everywhere. It's Beer Street and Gin Lane. And Beer Street is full of everyone doing really well. The sun's shining, they're drinking beer, their kids are playing outside. The only shop in the street is the pawnbrokers, and that's falling down. That's Nobody needs that. And in the other print is Gin Lane, and they're lying around, neglecting their kids. The pawnbrokers polishing his sign because everyone's trading in their goods to buy gin. So this poster campaign was sent out to say look what gin does it's awful it ruins society look what beer that's does. the one i'm looking at it now that's the one we all think of isn't it is everyone just the woman who's dropping her baby over she's neglecting well, her yeah. child because she's drunk look in the background there's the pawnbroker polishing his you know look i've got all their good stuff because oh god there's a guy in a barrow there, there's a um, there's some there's some uh, the undertaker's doing a dance because he's yeah because they're all gonna the die it's, it's, yeah. there's people being put into they're not messing around there's people being put into coffins there's there's a guy he's, there's a guy eating a bone with the dog so clearly, yes because he's so poor he's, he's so, so poor he's gnawing now now look up beer street and everything is popular and so you had to have this government campaign just as we do today saying hey kids stop sticking the beer up your nose you know whatever <laughs> so uh, it, that helps so, so is beer street the same is beer street the, the same, same place it, so was Hogarth commissioned to, yeah, to, yeah. to do this? Oh, Beer Street's right. happy, isn't it? Oh, gosh, Beer Street's, Beer Street's lovely. fine. Beer Street is where you go to enjoy yourself because you're British and you have a pint at the end of the day and everything's fine because oh, everything's balanced. They're all fat Everything's balanced, yeah. yeah. No, nobody's neglected. Everyone's eating properly. So there was a big campaign to stop this. And by the 1750s, they'd managed to bring it all under licensed retailers, move everything uh, around to... Um, to, to 
into a, be a better place so that you could control it. It doesn't stop gin being a popular drink, but it, it takes it off the streets, stops it being a problem, and, and adds it all in. But what you have got from that is because we went down a mass production route, is you get this genuinely English gin. So what came in a generation, two generations before they controlled it all was Dutch gin, which has a certain, it's very straw taste. I always think of it as tasting, tasting like licking the bottom of a hamster cage. Um, <laughs> but in a good way. <laughs> Whereas the the London gins are much much drier. They have uh, they have their own their own flavours. The, the the famous London gin is actually a, a, a later invention. You have to go into the nineteenth century and develop something called a column still, which does multiple distillations at once. We don't need to go into that. It's too complicated. But it creates a much purer, uh, finer product. But the one that comes out of the eighteenth century is uh, is actually on the rise again. It was referred to then as Old Tom. And you now see that on bottles. And that was quite a flavourful, um, spiced, softer, sweet gin, which is typically London-based. I, I very much like Old Tom's. Um, but they do have an interesting little side story. Because a Tom, Tom, of course, can be a Tomcat. Right. And as they're introducing the, uh, the taxation... There's you, us three. See, we've been knocking out gin out the back of our shed for years. No one's ever charged us any Doing tax. fine. Yep. Doing fine. Get the terps in it. Yep. Terps and a bit of vitriol and everyone's happy. Well, they don't come back and complain. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, suddenly a bloke says, well, if you sell gin, I'm going to tax you. And you're going to owe me six shillings. And so some very clever, <laughs> but possibly weird people, came up briefly with the idea of the Puss and Mew booth. Puss as in cat and mew as in the sound it makes. There's one possibly surviving. It is a large model cat. Just a painting on a wall, uh, on a piece of board. A cat. It sits there. And at the bottom of the cat's feet, or in some, it, uh, is a little drawer. And in other cases, there's a little pipe. He's got his paw up and it's, it's as if he's holding a pipe. Now, James wants a drink. He comes up to my little uh, wall-based bar which has got this painting over it so you can't even see me you tap on it and you shout puss puss and I open a little drawer you put a penny in and I go mew and a, a <laughs> glass of gin comes out at no point have we so done a transaction for gin and therefore are not taxable <laughs> What this is? This is a thing that happened, is it? Very not. Yeah, it's quite brief because it's not difficult to get round it. But yeah, I, I desperately want to see a Puss and Mew booth rebuilt in London. Oh well, when, when we do our great beer flood reunion, we're oh, yeah, also we gotta, build we one of these as well. One. Oh, that's that's incredible. A very complicated way of getting a glass of gin as well, and not particularly it's difficult a, for the police to find. I'm guessing either. No, it's Stop. amazing what people will do. And to, to, wait, to, wait, get, and to what? When is this, Mark? Uh, yeah, you're right. Again, you're in the um, second half of the. 18th century around right. the tax the tax so, reintroduction of the tax because it sounds like something straight out of prohibition times doesn't it this kind of secret code for for booze it's, and, it's and the same the idea it's, it's, it's the yeah. bang on a door do you, you know i know dave let me in it's uh, trying to do a, a secret transaction that doesn't involve i've never mentioned money you never mentioned gin so where you know where where's the where's the legal transaction but who's the guy that came up with the oh, no, oh, i know i have no idea picture of a let's cat pretend. right <laughs> bear with with me <laughs> yeah um we've all been in meetings with stranger ideas pitched <laughs> so I'm, I'm afraid uh, if i came up yeah if i'd come to you as a producer and said we're going to dress all the celebrities up as cats and they're going to give out random drinks yeah you'd have gone with it <laughs> yeah i'm in i'm in <laughs>
Good lord. The piss, p- puss and piss and me. The puss and me yeah. booth, right? <laughs> yeah. Look it up. So I would say let's so it would go like this, would it? I would I would stumble up, I would say puss puss. Yeah. To to um, and then what would door a little door would uh, open? Uh, or a little draw. So you've got then I want your money first. You you Yeah, so I would go puss puss and put my coin in the in, in, in the tray or, in or whatever, slot, yeah. And then you get Mew comes back and out comes your gin in a little glass. Or there's a cup the <laughs> only one that's supposed to survive has got this pipe on it, and I think you put a little cup up to the pipe and a shot of gin comes out. Oh I like uh, that. The idea the cat <laughs> serves you, that's quite good. Yes, that's yes. Quite... So Yeah, I didn't buy it off a bloke, Your Honour. A cat <laughs> sold it to me. Yeah. No, it's still not gonna work. <laughs> I wonder, you know, you said there was 1,500 breweries uh, or stills in London yeah. at that time. I'm curious how many there are now, actually, with the, the, the explosion and sort of bespoke gin now. Yes, um, I don't, it could easily be 1,500, couldn't it? Do you there think? are. I don't know. I, I've not had a look. There are so many. I mean, if you if you work in food and drink, we all look at the magazines. Every other page is a brand new gin that's. Uh, got pilchard and cucumber wrapped around it or something <laughs> I, I must admit i'm a bit of a purist i like i like my mixers to be separate to my gin so if i want to put a flavor in it i will do so <laughs> i don't need it to be in there in the bottle coming back to the purest water i've ever had ah. was in an was in an icelandic gin where they make the gin with a glacier oh <laughs> yeah great good yeah yeah that'll do it but that'll... you have to say that pure is flavorless and well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah, and therefore, does that what we want? Because London gin will take, it will have a, an effect for the London water. Everywhere you go, the different chemical compound of the water, good or bad, will affect the flavour. Mm. I give you the Guinness factory I visited in Africa that had a certain piquance to it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was. I think the lake next to it was responsible. Um, <laughs> well, that's why they can't sell it. If you're in Scandinavia, they say it's made with glacier. You're like, oh yes. If you're in London, you say it was made with London water. You're like, oh, hooray! <laughs> yes, oh, it's all it's all an image thing, isn't it? But yeah, the gla- the glacial uh, drinks were were very pure, but. I said, um, is that what I want? I want flavour. I want to. I want to like one thing more than another. So um, it, it's a bit. It's a bit difficult to decide what you like. I think the answer with food and drink is, what do you want today? Because <laughs> exactly. Yes. You, yes. You know, is it a bacon sandwich day or is it a fine dining day? They're both good. <laughs> They're both good. Um, no, you're absolutely right. We talk about that a lot. But what's best, better? It doesn't mean anything in the world of food and drink. Really, it's what what's right for you right now is is what it's all about. You know, what's the future of food? It's what I'm about to eat after this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Basically, when all those questions. Two paracetamol so and half a can of flat to. coke. Apparently. Well, <laughs> I'm just thinking. So, Mark, would you just have a straight tonic with your gin? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's my my final final bit is the gin and mm. tonic, which again is so typically British. Um, I do. I do like a gin and tonic. I think it's the way I was brought up properly. Um, the, <laughs> but of course, that that's 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 us taking gin away. That's our colonial past, specifically India, and the problem of malaria that we have in in the British colonies and other other colonies there. And the only answer before modern medicine that does actually um, negate some of the the problems with uh, with malaria is quinine, the the tree bark, which is difficult to produce into a drink but can be put into carbonated water quite easily that'll lift the the, it'll it'll dissolve in there so you create tonic and tonic we're back to medicine tonic means tonic it's a tonic it's not a drink it's a medicine do you like this bitter tonic that everyone's saying have a glass of this each day it'll keep the malaria off and you go ah that's a bit bitter that's sharp stick a slug of gin in there with it (laughs) 
<laughs> take the taste take away. Take the taste away. So that's where it is. Uh, does it really? Does the whole... Because I knew about the whole Fever Tree brand take it. You know, I knew about yeah, the quinine, quinine thing. Holy quinine, yeah. But, but the com- original trend comes from malaria from, countries where the colonies yeah. were. And, and, we, and you've got your, you've got, uh, the, your, your young, your third not-so-bright son out there running your colony. And he goes, uh, uh, you know, tr- what's this medicine? Oh, it's dreadful. Put some gin in there next time, will you? <laughs> Try and take the taste off it. And... Uh, I presume they tried rum and various other things, but uh, no, gin and tonic matched each other very nicely, the bitter taste. Mm. Stick some citrus fruit in, because that's grown outside the window, and the gin and tonic is born. Goodness me. <laughs> I didn't realise that. I've, in, my head, in my head, in that Hogarth picture, they're all putting uh, mixers no. with it as well. No, no, Hogarth's lot. Mostly they're drinking it neat. They're drinking it sugared, so they'll just stick a teaspoon of sugar in if they can. Or they're warming it up with sugar. Or they're um, making wonderful, wonderful blends, such as uh, the proto-cocktail, because it's not cocktail time yet, but the early cocktail called Dog's Nose, which I think (laughs) is a a real winner. So you take some gin, because it's very cheap, you put a bag of spices, like you would for mulled wine, in that gin for a couple of days, spice it up, a couple of tablespoons of sugar so it becomes quite a pleasant cordial, and then you mix it two-thirds, one-third with dark beer, and you've got a dog's nose. (laughs) Yeah, you've got to have a hangover after that. Uh, If you can hold it down for 10, you're a winner. (laughs) (laughs) I love the name as well. It's it's a beautiful... I mean, if you're thinking of a cocktail nail to sell something in the high-end bars of of the world, you don't call it dog's nose. (laughs) (laughs) Great to look at horror on James's face when describing that. No, I'm, He's I'm just trying. To, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what it would taste. I actually like, quite like. I actually quite like it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if, if get the blend right and, and say it's a sort of like a dark London porter with this spice gin at the bottom, it's actually not bad at all. I, I rather like it. <laughs> hmm. We're going to have to have an episode where we try all these, you know. Oh yeah. Gonna yeah. Be well, usually, when, when, when we're allowed to um, to touch each other once more, but in in, <laughs> in, in a safer work manner, we can. <laughs> well, I, I'm we trying to throughout these podcasts. I've made the, I've made very much the resolution to to act upon them. Like uh, for example, now since we met Henrietta and we spoke, you know, a rare tea lady, I've drunk nothing but loose leaf tea, and it has genuinely done exactly as she said. It has changed my relationship with tea now. It is fabulous, and I'm thoroughly enjoying. And she said at the time, you know, it's like drinking in three dimensions. It's it's it, it's just completely right. The problem you have is now I I need to go down. I need to go and just crack open a bottle of lots of bottles of gin. Get the terps from the shed. Start mixing it with some beer and explain to my wife why I spent the rest of the It's work. It's work, darling. <laughs> it's work, Mark darling. made me do it. <laughs> I'm just living the podcast. It's a method podding as we talk about. It's a, well, on, on that note, I'm afraid that has flown by, but we now must mm. all jump into our hangover cures, our tonics. Our, well, now we know it's medicinal. We can just go and have a load of shots, and that's actually going to be good for good for us. Yeah, I think it's exactly the way to do it. Um, Mark, thank you ever so much. That was a, a, a joyous trip inside the world of gin. Thank you, absolutely fascinating. And I, again, we'll not look at gin quite the same way again. Um, and uh, James, I just want to say to our, all our listeners, thank you so much for being on this adventure with us. Uh, it has been remarkable, and we're looking forward to making many more podcasts for you in in the coming year. And we we, we want to wish you a very happy new year out there. Thank you ever so much for being a part of this. Do get in touch at Journey to the Centre of Food on Instagram and journeytocentreoffood at gmail.com. And as James said, let us know which way you want us to 
take the podcast absolutely yeah yeah we were we're all open to all ideas we're just interested and curious in the world of food and drink and we you know if you've got questions or thoughts and things you'd like us to delve into then do we love all that interaction and subscribe please we love that we we so it's our our bread and butter oh yeah the subscribe button do that we always forget to say that we're rubbish at this uh subscribe (laughs) wonderful but for this week and for this year thank you ever so much everybody thank you mark James, Cheers. I will speak to you again very soon. Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year.